we are starting a new sermon series this week, looking at the book of Esther from the Old Testament. Now, chances are you don't know a lot about the book of Esther, and that's okay, because the author of Esther, whoever that might be, has written an amazing story, full of details, full of, of great imagery, and actually a lot of irony and satire. It's a great story. It doesn't need a lot of background, except for maybe timeline. Where does this fit in the history of God's people? The events of Esther take place in the early 5th century, 490, 485 B.C. Um, That might also not mean a lot to you, but that's okay. Um, If you remember, God's people were divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. Assyria came in and took over the northern kingdom, took them all off into exile. A couple generations later, Babylon came in, took over Assyria, and conquered Judah, the southern kingdom, and took them all off into exile. And as the wheel of history kept on turning, the Medo-Persian Empire came in and took over Babylon. And in 539 BC, Cyrus the Great, king of Medo-Persia, decreed that any Jew that wanted to leave and return to Jerusalem could do so. And in fact, he supplied them and said, go ahead and rebuild your temple in Jerusalem. We have this recorded for us in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And 50 years after that decree is when the events of Esther take place. Now, uh, Cyrus has died. His grandson is on the throne. Uh, Unfortunately, his grandson's name is Ahasuerus. I'm sorry, Jill. You're going to have to deal with that this morning. We know him by his Greek name, Xerxes, but there's a really important reason why Xerxes is not used. Instead, Ahasuerus is used. And we got to focus on him because this is really a story about kings and kingdoms. And so he plays a very fundamental role. And as Jill reads the selections from chapter 1, I'll read the selections from chapter 2 later uh, in my sermon. But as she reads from chapter 1, I would encourage you to think about this question. How would you feel to live under a king like Ahasuerus? Let's give ear to the reading of God's word. Scripture reading from Esther 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of, the, all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed, his, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when, the, when these days were completed, the king gave for all of the people a present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king has, had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Herbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princess her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. The king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all those who were versed in the law and judgment. 
According to the law, what, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before the king Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we come before you this morning, um, a bit distracted, a bit distant, but we pray that you would send your spirit to help us focus. We thank you that you promise us that even though the words of your scripture seem to be completely removed from our present day situation, so distant that we can't relate to them, you tell us that because you wrote it, because you inspired it, because your spirit fills it, it matters to us. It has something to say to us. So we ask that you would send your spirit to help us understand the good news of your gospel as it is contained in this book. Help us to see the places where you are showing us your love for us. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And we pray this in your son's mighty and powerful name. Amen. I think that Robin Hood and the Sheriff of Nottingham are perhaps one of the greatest foils in all of storytelling. Now, I'm not talking about the, what you see in the Kevin Costner, Sean Connery live-action remake. I'm not, and none of those live-action remakes hold a candle to the Disney version of Robin Hood. The one where Robin Hood is a fox and the Sheriff of Nottingham is a bear. Um, little John happens to be a, a bear too. And then the you know, Prince John, he's actually like a young lion, right? This is a fantastic movie. It is real drama. It creates this moral tension, right? Because it cr- talks about two kingdoms, two kings, and it shows people facing a decision, right? Prince John is on the throne, and he is wicked, and he is greedy, self-serving. He taxes everybody. He sleeps with bags of money under his pillow. But we've heard about this other king, Richard the Lionheart. He's the good king, the one who loves his people, who uses his power to protect his people. But he's off on the crusades. He might be coming back. He's distant. Maybe he's gone. And the question is presented, who will you serve? The sheriff of Nottingham realizes it's time to get some while the getting's good. And so he serves Prince John, and he reaps the spoils. But Robin Hood, he stands up for what's right. He opposes the wicked things that Prince John puts into place, all the different statutes. He robs from the rich to give to the poor at the risk of becoming an outlaw or even worse, being executed. Right? This is the great moral tension of the story. I'm willing to admit I might be reading a little bit into a Disney movie, but this is the moral tension that we are faced with in Esther as well. Two kings, two kingdoms, one that is incredibly wicked and greedy, driven by lust and self-service. This is King Ahasuerus, but another king who proclaims himself to be good, who loves his people and will protect his people, but at times seems distant, feels absent and is almost always silent, and that's God. That same moral tension fills our lives as well. God proclaims himself to be good and for his people, but is oftentimes silent and feels distant. And in, in, even though the kingdom of Medo-Persia is gone and Ahasuerus is not on the throne, we all live in these circles, concentric circles of kingdoms of the world, 
underneath leaders who vie for our allegiance, who want us to follow and fall in line with their kingdom. And there's God. Where is God in all of this? He says that he is for his people. He says that he is working his kingdom into this world, redeeming and renewing his people. But oftentimes I don't see it. I don't feel it. It seems like day to day, year after year, history just continues. And my decisions matter and other people's responses matter. But it doesn't seem like God plays a really big role in this. So who should I serve? Who should you serve? This is the great question that the story of Esther revolves around. And in these first two chapters, what we see is that Esther, the, the book, diagnoses some of the reasons that we might feel pulled to fall in line with the kingdoms of the world, to follow the leaders of the world, fear and love. It also presents for us a couple examples of what happens when we choose to respond to those pulls, either assimilate or be kicked out. And finally, it shows us God's response, what God is doing. It gives us a window to see how God is constantly working. That's what's presented for us in these first two chapters, what we're going to look at this morning. Fear and love, the things that the world cries out to us to fall in line with assimilate or get out, and God is working always. So that's where we're going. That's what we're looking at this morning. The first we're going to start out is looking at this idea that kingdoms of the world desire us to fear them or love them. Do you love me? Do you fear me? All we need to know about how Ahasuerus ruled as a king, we can see in two parties and a command. That's how the whole chapter of chapter one starts. Two parties and a command. The first four verses tell us that he throws a party for 180 days, and he invites the nobles and the leaders and everyone who rules 127 provinces to his palace. And they come and they pay homage to him. They're coming, bringing him gifts. But what's really important for us to see is verse 3, where it tells us that the army was there as well. See, he is displaying his power. He's showing off his might, his army, and the homage that these people are paying aren't just random gifts, but they're coming and they're giving him gold and silver. They're bringing to him weapons and and armies, battalions. They're bringing food, they're bringing wine, they're bringing livestock. He is building up his army to prepare to go and invade Greece. The historian Herodotus accounts that about three years after this took place, Uh, Xerxes, Ahasuerus, went and tried to conquer Athens and failed. And here at this party, he is gathering his forces together, putting on a display of his power. But it's also good for another purpose. He is showing all 127 provinces, don't forget who I am. Don't forget what I can do. When the call to invade comes, don't deny it. See my power? Fear me. First party, all about fear. But, lest anyone would say that Ahasuerus is all work and no play, something else takes place. We see this in verse 5. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. See, this is a grand party. And this is for everybody, from the keeper of the, of the king's horses all the way up to the folks who sit at his right hand. 
the king throws a lavish party. He opens his wine cellars. He opens his cupboards. But what's really important is to see his edict in verse 8. There is no compulsion. Tradition held in the court of Medo-Persia that when the king drank, you drank. When the king ate, you ate. Even if you were full, even if you were blackout drunk. When the king drank, you drank. But that's not how he wanted to be seen. So he said, guys, 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 guys. My wine is our wine. My food is our food. Unless you don't want to. You just have a good time. Who wouldn't love a king like that? And that's what he's going for. First party, fear me. Second party, love me. Love me. Look what I've done for you. Why would you want to go against what I say? I can provide all of this for you. Now, there's a time and a place for a king to establish and remind people of his power. There's a time and a place for a king to lavish gifts on people to show them that he loves them. But the way this is done is out of exploitation. The king uses his position in order to exploit people. And we see this when it comes to the command. The command shows us that he is still after fear, still after love, but it reveals his heart exploiting his position in order to gain security and cement authority. When the party has been going on for a long time and he is plastered, he demands the queen come before his court with her crown. Now, there's not a lot of agreement on what that means, but everyone can agree that being a woman in Medo-Persia was not a safe place, that women were viewed as possessions And they were utilized that way and exploited as such. And so when the king commands that Queen Vashti come forth, right, we know for a fact that this is to degrade her and humiliate her. He is showing her off as his royal plaything. But he's doing it to inspire fear and to garner love, right? Fear in the sense of everyone has to obey me, even the queen. Right? We can almost see him sitting with his drinking buddies. Guys, watch this. Right? But at the same time, he's like, I, I, want, I, I love you guys so much. I just love you guys that I want you to enjoy the beauty of the queen as well. Fear and love in an exploitative way. And this is all to gain security and cement authority. That's what he is after. That's what leaders in this world are after. Now, you might have someone in your head that you're thinking about, yeah, I see that definitely play out. Maybe it's a leader, maybe it's a boss that you've had, maybe a parent, maybe a spouse. But if you take an honest look in the mirror, I'm willing to bet that you'll see what I see. And that's someone who wants to cement authority and bring security by trying to make people fear you or make people love you. And we can whittle this down into the smallest of actions. I'm thinking about the way that I put my two girls to bed at night, right? So Margaret and Michaela share a room, two, uh, five and a half and almost three. We put them to bed. We pray with them, sing songs. We turn out the light and we say, girls, it's time for bed, time to be quiet. We love you. We'll see you in the morning. Most nights, 30 minutes later, they're still up giggling. They're still up talking, singing. Sometimes Michaela wants to go to sleep. Margaret's still talking and we hear her say, Margaret! go to sleep. That's when we go in for the first time. And when I go in there for the first or second time, it's all about the love, right? 
girls, oh, we had so much fun today, and we want to have that much fun tomorrow, but we need our sleep. So let's be quiet. Let's say our prayers and sing our songs, and let's go to bed. But the third or fourth time that I go in there, an hour after we've put them to bed, it's all about the fear baby. They need to know that I am not happy. And so I'll go in there, girls, it is night time. It is bedtime. No more different voice. You can hear it in the voice. I'm all about the fear. And then I drop the, the one phrase to inspire fear. Don't make me come in here again. Simple, but honest. When we are looking to cement our authority or bring security to ourselves, often we try to exploit people by having them fear us or making them love us. You may not see that in your own life, but we can all agree that we live under leaders who rule this way. They want us to fear them. They want us to love them. And the question is, how do we respond? This is the way the kingdoms of the world work. How do we respond? What are our options? And the passage gives us two examples. Assimilate or get out. Queen Vashti shows us what it looks like to not assimilate and to have to get out. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. He demands that she comes forth with her crown. He is wanting to exploit her and humiliate her, and she says no. But he's drunk, and so he has to say, wait, 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 guys, 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 guys. What am I supposed to do about this now that she has disobeyed me? And at the behest of the men sitting around him, he banishes her. She is never allowed to come before him again. Many people think that she was actually executed. But in addition to that, he sends out this edict that demands that all the women in the 127 provinces that he rules over obey their husbands. This is a little bit of an aside, but do you see how the insecurity of those men sitting around him have led them to utilize their power to exploit their wives and make them feel fear, right? They're afraid, they're thinking to themselves, wait, if the queen can disobey the king, then my queen, my wife, the queen of my little kingdom, if you will, thinks she can disobey me. So they grasp onto their power, knowing the king, and they say, tell, tell our wives, Make them be afraid of us. Vashti doesn't submit. Vashti rejects it, rejects the fear, the fear card. She suffers for it. She's kicked out, most likely executed. Now for us, standing up against the kingdoms of the world probably isn't going to end in physical death. But chances are what happens to us is going to be incredibly inconvenient uncomfortable, might feel like death. See, the, the king says, if you will, you want to make it in the valley? Well, if you don't work 80 hours a week, if you're not working nights and weekends, if you're not uh, willing to sacrifice your vacation days, you're going to fail. It's never going to work. Rejecting that fear that it's trying to put into your heart, saying no, might look like actually never getting a promotion. It might look like never starting your own company. It might look like never getting a call from a headhunter. Right? See, the, the king of this world says, if you don't have enough money and resources saved up, if you don't have a big bank account, if you don't own your house, if you don't have the ability to provide for your family, when the economic downturn comes, y'all are going to be living on the street. But if you choose to reject that fear, 
It might mean you never own a house. It might mean you have to move away from the Bay Area. Things that feel like death. But the king of this world also says, wait, 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 life is real tough. Why not enjoy it a little bit? We have lots to offer you. Why not medicate the worry and the pain and the suffering with a little drinking, with some drugs? Why not address your loneliness by dating around, by sleeping around? Life is hard enough as it is. Why not just enjoy some of the finer things, right? Rejecting that call to love the kingdom of this world might look like losing your friends. It might look like being lonely for a little bit longer, maybe a lot longer. It might look like heartbreak, things that feel like death, things that make us get out. But of course, there is another way, isn't there? And we see this other way from an unlikely place. This is what happens in chapter 2. After the king has kicked out Vashti, chapter 2, verse 2, then the king's young men who attended him said, well, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And he, that is Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman, who had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a feast, a great feast, for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. Esther and Mordecai have assimilated into the Persian ways. They have decided to follow the laws of King Ahasuerus. Uh, First of all, they're still in Persia. You remember why I said, Cyrus the Great said, any Jew that really wants to go back to Jerusalem and worship their God, you can do it. I'm even going to help you build your temple. But if you're living in exile, Susa, the winter capital of the the Medo-Persian Empire, ain't such a bad place to live. Things were going pretty well for them. And so here what we see is that they're still there. They are Persianized Jews. And we see this in who they are and what they do. First of all, their names give this away, right? It's not easy for us to understand, but the Jews who are first reading this account would read this and say, oh, Hadassah, that's a normal Jewish name. That is Esther. Esther is her Persian name. Not only is her Persian name given, suggesting that that's what she went by, but the book is named after her Persian name. That's really uncommon. Mordecai as well. Yeah, we have a great lineage preserved for us that goes back several generations. In fact, telling us that Mordecai is related to the first king of Israel, King Saul. 
But Mordecai is not a traditional Hebrew name. Mordecai is a name that is taken from Babylon, from Medo-Persia, and is actually named after their chief idol, their chief god, Marduk. He and Esther have both been Persianized. They have assimilated. We see this in how they behave. Mordecai tells Esther not to talk about her heritage, not to tell anyone that she is part of God's chosen people. In addition to that, he allows his virgin niece to go into the bedchamber of a pagan king. Neither of those things follow with what God has laid out in his laws. And unless we think that Mordecai is the only one who is assimilated in this way, yes, Esther is compelled into this beauty pageant, if you will, but once she's there, she chooses to behave in such a way that takes all of the important things of the Persian Empire and uses them for her benefit. She impresses everybody that's around her. She utilizes her beauty and her sensuality in order to win favor with the king and gain her security. The Jews who first read this account would not have thought, oh man, if my daughter could just grow up to be like Esther, my son like Mordecai, they would not see them as exemplary Jews. If this were written about Christians living in the first or the second century or or even today, we would not look at this story and say, wow, what godly people. Maybe one day I'll be good enough to do that. And in that way, Esther and Mordecai are far more like us than we're willing to admit. They are flawed. They are sinners. They feel the pull of the kingdom of this world stronger than they hear and feel the pull of God. And so they respond, whether out of fear, whether out of love to the kingdom of the world, and they fall in line and they assimilate. But wait, Stephen, you said this was a tale of two kingdoms and two kings. I'm hearing a lot about this one, Persian, Ahasuerus. Where is God in all of this? Well, God is at work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I understand God is at work, you might say. I get it. That's your third point. That's important. God is at work. But who is God working through? right? Whose actions is God utilizing in order to continue working out his kingdom, right? Vashti's standing up against oppression, willing to fight exploitation, doing what is right, risking her own neck, or Esther utilizing the values of the kingdom around her in order to improve her own status, fitting in, assimilating. Everything inside of me cries out, it's got to be Vashti, right? God is using Vashti's actions, right? Not Esther's, because I want God to use good people and good decisions. God uses good actions because I think I'm good. I want God to use me, and I think I'm good. So I want God to use Vashti, even though she's a pagan queen who has no idea who God is. The book of Esther tells us over and over again that God can use minuscule faith and the most misguided, compromised actions in order to work the redemption of his people into their lives. Quietly, behind the scenes, yes, God uses Vashti's actions, but simultaneously he is using these assimilated Jews, the actions of Mordecai and Esther, quietly, almost imperceptibly, behind the scenes, that's really hard for us. Because see, we have recorded for us God speaking through His prophets, God speaking to Moses in a burning bush, audibly talking to people. 
We have recorded for us these great actions that God has done. He appears as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He parts the Red Sea for His people to walk across dry land. We have recorded for us the fact that God became man and He lived a normal human life, was murdered on a cross, didn't stay dead, but He rose from the grave. That's the kind of action that we want. But when we don't get it, when we don't hear God, when He seems distant, when He seems absent, we start to think, right, God only uses good people. God only speaks through good people. I know how I failed. I know where I've assimilated. That's why He's not talking to me. That's why He's not using me. That's why He's left. But the message of Esther says differently. And this is echoed throughout all of Scripture. Jesus even tells us the same thing. In the Gospel account of Mark, Jesus gives this parable in Mark chapter 4. He said, The kingdom of God is if, is if as a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus says, the book of Esther tells us, God works sometimes imperceptibly. Did you notice that God is not even mentioned in these first two chapters of Esther? In fact, God is not mentioned at all in this entire book. But we can see God's fingerprints everywhere in this story. And it starts with Esther's name, her real name, her Hebrew name, Hadassah. It means myrtle. But if you take away the vowels, which Hebrew is written in large vowels, or excuse me, large consonants and small vowels, if you take away the small vowels, the root consonants you have is the verb to hide, to be hidden. The author of Esther is telling us God is hidden here, hidden behind all of these things. The other way that we see this communicated in the book of Esther is through coincidence, what we might call coincidence. Think of it this way. It just so happened that one day when the king was incredibly drunk, he demanded his wife to come before his drunk friends. It just so happened that on this day, the queen didn't want to come. It just so happens that all the people around the king said, you should banish her. It just so happened that one of the young men there said, why don't you try and pick your lot from uh, all of the virgins of the kingdom? Maybe a good one will come and you can get a queen from there. It just so happens that there was a beautiful young Jewish virgin in Persia at the time. It just so happens that she decided to try to win the favor of people around her. It just so happens that she caught the eye of the king. And it just so happens that he loved her more than anyone else that he met in this beauty pageant. And it just so happens that a young Jewish woman found herself to be queen over 127 provinces over the Persian Empire, which was one of the dominant empires on the planet at that time. Coincidence? I don't think so. I agree with the author of Esther by saying too much coincidence to just be coincidence. God is at work behind the scenes quietly. Where is God hiding in your story? Where is God at work in ways that you could not see him until you look back? Where is it that you have assimilated? And how could God be using that? 
Where is it that you failed and thought, this is why God has left me? And where is God still at work in those times? When I was a youth director 10 plus years ago, some of the kids in my youth group started bringing a friend of theirs, Garrison, uh, to come to our events. Uh, And Garrison was one of the most popular kids in school. He was a football player, lacrosse player, ladies' man, but an all-around nice guy. And he would come to all of our fun events, ski trip, he'd come to bowling night, he'd come to all the parties we threw, that kind of stuff. And eventually he started coming on Wednesday nights to our youth group. And I thought for sure it was just because these kids had become his friend. But one day we went to breakfast and he told me that he had grown up basically hating the church because his parents really hated the church. But in the past couple of years, their marriage was really starting to hit the rocks and he needed some folks to hang out with. And the kids in my youth group had decided to befriend him. And he said, I've never heard anybody talk about Jesus this way. And he said, I want to get baptized. That's great. I wasn't officially a pastor at the time. So I connected him with the pastor of our church and they set a date. And I said, hey, you definitely need to invite your parents. Or, you know, maybe they don't want to come, but this is a really big deal and they're going to want to know about this. And he was like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. So a couple weeks later, I asked him, I said, Garrison, you talked to your parents yet? He was like, "Um, yes, yes I have. And that's when I started to feel the kingdoms of this world pull on me. And the first was fear. I didn't want to be the one to sit down with his parents who hated the church and tell them that their son was going to be baptized in the church. But the other was, I wanted Garrison to love me. I wanted him to see that I trusted him that I was the type of person who would just take him at his word. And so I didn't follow up on the, uh, mm, eh, yes. So the day came, on Sunday morning he was up, the pastor of our church baptized him. It was exciting, it was a, a great day. And as we're getting ready to all go out and celebrate, these two people grab me. And they say, hey, we need to talk to you, we're Garrison's parents. Whew, okay, so we sit down in my office, and they take 20 minutes to just light me up. He had not invited them. No one had talked to them. They didn't know about this. What were we doing indoctrinating their son into our false religion? 20 minutes, just let me have it. And I sat and was like, I'm I'm really sorry. I don't know what else to say. I'm really sorry. This is my fault. I should have followed up on it. I'm really sorry. Over and over again. They left and they were really upset. I didn't see Garrison a lot anymore. He came to a couple events here and there, but for the most part, That was a defining moment in the relationship that I had with him. And after a couple of months, we moved. I went and started going to seminary in Charlotte. Um, And throughout that time, throughout those three years, I looked back on that failure and thought, "This this was one time where I assimilated, where I gave in to the fear, gave in to wanting someone to love me, and it really screwed things up. Finish seminary, graduate, get ordained, become a pastor, move to Tennessee, plant a church. In the midst of planting a church, I got a call from my sister who works in youth ministry. And she was at this youth ministry training conference. And someone saw her name tag and said, Chitty, you're not related to Stephen Chitty, are you? And she was like, yeah, he's my brother. And he said, my name is Garrison, and your brother's the first person that told me about Jesus. Because Garrison is now a youth pastor. And so this whole time I'm sitting here thinking, I have failed. My inability to move past fear, to try and do what was right, meant that he's not part of the church anymore. But God was at work. God was at work in his life, changing him, drawing him closer, working to bring him into his people and the calling that he had placed on Garrison's life. But God was at work in me too. 
that repetitive failure talk, the, the, the narrative that was going on in my head over and over again about how I had failed was turned on its head when I got that call from my sister. And it reminded me that there's nothing that I can do to save people anyway, that it is God who calls people to himself. And sometimes he works silently. Sometimes he works powerfully in, in amazing ways, but often he works through our failure. He works to change us by using our failure and our sin. I had a seminary professor who used to say it this way. I went to seminary in Charlotte, so this is a southern accent. He said, God uses sin sinlessly. God is at work in our lives. God is at work in your lives. Whether you feel like you're full bore assimilated into our culture or you think you're doing everything right, it is God who is at work in us. God who is changing us, who is redeeming us. And the story of Esther tells us people in this world are going to tell you to fear them, call you to love them, want you to fall in line. You can assimilate or you can get out. And in either case, no matter what you've done, God is faithful. God is at work. God is making you whole. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you show us and tell us in your word that you do not give up on us, that you do not flee when we fail, but that you are faithful. You push in, you persevere, even though we can't hear you, we can't see you working, we can't feel you, though you feel far off that you are here at work through the power of your spirit. And we do thank you that you sent your son to live the life that we could not live and die the death we deserved to prove to us that you will not only continue this work, but you have finished it. And one day you'll bring it to completion when you call us home to be with you forever. We thank you for your son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.